The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, I just wanted to share a, kind of a short devotional tonight out of the, since we do, tonight is the night we remember uh, the death of Christ, and it's more than remember, it's actually celebrate the death of Christ, is our privilege this evening and so far to ask you, when is the first time the death of Christ is mentioned in the Bible? Or another way to state it is, what is the first prophecy of the death of Christ found in the Bible? That's where I wanted us to be tonight. So if you could turn, if you have your Bible, you can go to Genesis 3. Uh, we're going to zero in eventually at Genesis 3.15, which is the earliest prophecy of the death of the Messiah in the Bible. It's in the third chapter, the very beginning of the book of the Bible. And we're going to talk about the meaning of that and the fact that it's just the third chapter, the very beginning of creation where the death of the Messiah is introduced is a great reminder for us that Christ's death really interprets the meaning of history. It is the focal point of redemptive history. It's really the circumference and the epicenter of all meaning from God's point of view for humanity. So the death of Christ, very significant. It's all throughout the Bible. It weaves its way all throughout thematically through every book of the Bible, culminating in the book of Revelation. So, And we get to celebrate. Again, I said celebrate, not just remember, but celebrate the meaning of uh, Jesus' death through communion, which we're going to do at the end of our service this evening for those of us who know him. Personally, but before I get to Genesis 3.15, which is the first prophecy of Jesus' death in the Bible, I want to set it in its proper context and just a couple of highlights in Genesis 1 through 3, which is appropriate because we need to keep going back time and time again to Genesis 1 through 3 for it is foundational to everything. It is it's true. It is history. It actually happened. Uh, there was an eyewitness there when these events happened. That is God himself the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God ensured that this would be recorded through the power of his Holy Spirit and inscripturated, inerrant, and inspired in the Bible today. So it is a divine account of true history of how everything started in the very beginning from God's point of view and according to reality. So the events that I'm going to highlight here are not metaphor. It's not allegory. It's not to be spiritualized away as non-historical. This is where we came from. This is our beginning. This is how things came to be. This is how things unfolded. And as a result, these first three chapters really uh, give us meaning to life, even today, from God's divine point of view. Very significant, starting with that great reality. Just in summary form, Genesis chapter 1 talks about how God created everything in the beginning. And it happened just as Genesis 1 describes As a matter of fact, God says repeatedly in Genesis chapter 1, as he goes day by day through the creation, and he says, and it was so, verse 7 of chapter 1, and it was so, and it was so, verse 15, and it was so. And that phrase is a repeated refrain all throughout Genesis chapter 1, and it was so, verse 24, and it was so, verse 30. And God is saying this is exactly how it happened. God is an authoritative witness to these events. And so 
the Bible says that God created all things in the universe in six days. The culmination of his creation was the human race, Adam and Eve. He made them together instantaneously out of nothing, starting with Adam. And then he put Adam to sleep and created Eve and brought them together, the first human race. And at the end of his creation, at the end of day six, God pronounced in verse 30 that it was very good. Meaning up to that point in his creation, when he finished his creation, very good, meaning that there was no sin. God was satisfied with what he had created. And sin had not yet entered into the human race or into the world. It was very good. And then chapter 2 expands on day 6 and the, the apex of God's creation, which is humanity and Adam and Eve, the first two real people, and shows how God created Adam out of dirt, out of the dust of the ground, supernaturally, amazingly, and breathed, formed Adam, and then breathed into Adam life. And God gave him life, and he became a living soul, the first human being. And then God created Eve from a rib from Adam, the first two humans, and gave them an injunction, a command to obey and comply with as their creator, as their maker. And even, I would say, as their friend at that time, because sin hadn't had not entered into the relationship and told them they could be satisfied and eat all that God had presented except for one tree to refrain from that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They knew that. They understood that, especially Adam as the leader of the relationship. And that's chapter 2. But God did warn Adam in chapter 2 that if you disobey in the event that you eat from the tree I told you not to, when you do disobey in that day, you shall die. So from the very beginning, God made clear the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is death from the very beginning. And death throughout the Bible means usually three different things, depending upon the context. Usually it's physical death. Actually, death at the heart means separation, which would include physical death, where our soul is separated from our physical body when we die physically in this life. Separation. So there's physical separation. There's also spiritual separation. Every person born into this world is born sinful, separated from God. And that's why we need to be born again in this life as we hear the gospel. Jesus said that. You must be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So there's that spiritual separation uh, that is also a meaning of death where we need to be born again so we can have a relationship with God. And then there's also eternal death. Anybody that dies Rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting his gospel, goes into eternal death where they're eternally separated from God forever in hell, which is a real place. So that's what death means. It means separation. And God warned Adam, in the day that you eat from it, you surely shall die. And then we're introduced to chapter 3, and I'll start reading at verse 1. Now the serpent, and this is a snake, this really was a snake that God had created. God created all the animals. The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, the the snake began to talk, which makes people think that this is an allegory or a metaphor or a myth. But actually the snake literally did talk. And we know that even from the New Testament where we get more details. It was Satan, who is a demon, who is a fallen angel, who is a spirit, who is supernatural, who has power, who is deceptive, who has freedom, who has limited freedom, 
because God oversees, actually isn't in charge of Satan, what he's allowed to do, Satan went inside of this snake. And so the snake was able to talk. And the snake spoke to the woman and said, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. That's Satan. He's always questioning the veracity of God's word, always wanting to put a question or a doubt in people's minds. That's how Satan operates, planting seeds of doubt. And the woman said to the serpent, to the actual snake that spoke to her, It was demon-possessed. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So Eve knew the consequence of disobedience or sin. It was death. Verse 4, the serpent said again to the woman, you surely will not die. And that's what Satan does. He creates doubt. He questions God's word. And then he always totally contradicts and denies God's word. And he still does that to this very day through false teachers and false doctrine. Verse five, for God knows that in the day, and this is Satan talking through the snake, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. He's tempting the woman and Satan tempts people today. And when the woman or Eve saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, now Eve is being tempted in three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And she succumbed. She fell. When God said in Genesis chapter 1, the end of his creation, that creation was very good, he didn't say it was perfect. He didn't say it was ideal. It hadn't been totally completed or perfected yet because that awaits the future. That's resurrection humanity is perfect and complete humanity. That is God's ideal. That's what we look forward to. Even though Adam and Eve didn't have sin, they were still vulnerable. They were vulnerable to temptation, to sin, to sickness, to death, and they experienced all of those, yet without sin, when it was very good. So Eve could be tempted, and she was. As a finite human, and she succumbed and gave in to the temptation. In the eyes of, uh, then she took from its fruit, she ate, she gave it also to her husband. He also ate in utter disobedience to what he knew the command of God was. And in the eyes of both of them, as soon as they ate, were open. And they knew that they were naked. They, they experienced guilt for the first time in their life. That's why Genesis is so amazing, especially Genesis 1 through 3. It answers so many questions about humanity. And one is, why do we experience guilt? The secular world tells us guilt is bad. We need to get rid of guilt. We need to numb guilt. When that is not true, actually, guilt is a good thing. Guilt is a gift from God. Guilt is an indicator that something is wrong. And guilt needs to be attended to. And so they experience guilt as humans for the first time because of their sin And in their guilt and in their shame and in their fear, because they have all of these emotions, because it comes out in the text, they react. They react to a holy God whose standard is perfection. They react to a holy God and a judge whom they've already heard say, in the event that you sin, you shall surely die. And so now they need to hide, run from, cover their sin deceptively and as a result they sewed fig leaves together from the garden and made themselves loin covering they were trying to hide is what they were doing hiding their shame hiding their guilt hiding from god they used their own hands to cover up 
that which they try to hide their sin with. This will be contrasted later with verse 21 of what God tries to do with their shame and their sin. Verse 8, then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're running from the Creator, from the Holy One. They feel guilt. The Bible says that no man in his own seeks after a holy God. Sinners don't seek God. Sinners run from God. And yet God calls us to seek Him. And we only do that in response to His call and His working in our life and His grace and His Holy Spirit and the truth of His Word and His initiative. And so they do what sinners always do, naturally, run from God, trying to hide from God, hiding in the trees in the garden. And the Lord God called to the man, Adam. He was the leader. He was the head of the home. And naturally, he cries out to him and says, Where are you, Adam? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. There's the fear. Sinners fear God the Creator. Sinners fear a holy God. Sinners fear a God who is judge in light of their guilt when they have no forgiveness. This is humanity today. That's why people fear death, especially those who don't know God, that don't know Jesus, that don't believe in the Bible. They don't know how to interpret death. They don't understand. They don't know really deep in their souls what's going to happen after they die. There is fear. And so Adam has that. And he was afraid and he was afraid and He said he was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? That was a yes or no question. I'll read it again. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Yes or no. Verse 12. Then Adam said, well, the woman you gave me. So instead of owning up to it and saying, yes, God, yes, Lord, I disobeyed, I sinned against you. He is evasive and he blames. And that's what sinners do. We blame people. We don't want to accept culpability. We want to blame others. That just comes natural to sinful humans. And that's what Adam did. And he blames two people. First, he blames Eve, the woman, he says. (laughs) Then he blames God. The woman you gave me, God, that's why I sinned. The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, well, what is this you have done? And so he holds the woman accountable for her part. And she doesn't respond any better than Adam. She also blames. She's a little more creative. And Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. We do that all the time, don't we? Satan is real. The devil is real. He does tempt. He is deceptive. He does blind. He cause he's voracious. He is vicious. He's the destroyer. He roams around like a roaring lion seeking who made may devour yeah he is he is real but we can't use satan as an excuse when we sin against god but that's what eve did and as a result because god is holy he must punish sin that's clear all throughout the bible and so he does that for the first time in the history of humanity as he punishes sin he gives consequences and he gives consequences in four areas and these consequences are evident today And they really answer the the question of the problem of evil that so many people struggle with today as they look around in this world and they see this world and they see natural disasters and they wonder why do these happen and why do innocent people die and earthquakes and drown and on and on the natural disasters go and why is there poverty and famine and all these horrible things in the natural world and beyond that why are these other horrible things going on in our world? Sickness and pain and death and suffering. Well, it's all answered here in Genesis Chapter 3, in terms of the consequences that God gives. So I want to go over those real quick. What were the consequences that God gave as a result of sin? And here they are, starting at verse 
14, God gives a consequence first to the actual animal, the actual snake. I believe God cursed the snake and all of subhuman creation with this curse. He says, verse 14, the Lord God said to the snake or the certain, the actual animal, he said, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And to this day, the snake has been cursed among animals. And one of the curses that God brought upon this animal, the snake, is that it would be feared, it would be despised all throughout history, and it is. And even there is apparently a physical curse taken upon the snake that the way it would uh, get around and ambulate would be on its belly. It wouldn't have legs to walk around. It wouldn't have wings to fly. It would be eating dirt all of its life, and that is true even to this day. This happened 6,000 years ago. It's amazing. So God cursed the snake and probably all of animal creation as a result. Especially in light of uh, Genesis chapter 5, 29, it says where God cursed the earth. So after God curses the animal, we'll skip verse 15, and he curses the woman, uh, the first woman. And God said to Eve, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. This is a, a devastating consequence from God. Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our own image. And in the image of God, he created the male and female, Adam and Eve together, perfectly reflecting the full image of God. And the first thing God did after he created Adam and Eve is he blessed them, says Genesis chapter 1. He blessed them. That's the opposite of a curse, what he's doing now. God's intent when man and woman came together as husband and wife, they were to be blessed. That was God's intent in Genesis chapter 1. Created uh, Adam and Eve in his own image. He blessed them and he said to them, he blessed their marriage and he said, and he blessed Eve's womb and he blessed her ability to be pregnant. He blessed her desire to raise children. He blessed their desire to procreate and bring other humans into the race. Genesis chapter one, verse 21, God says he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. So from the very beginning, God blessed the marriage and their ability to procreate which is the very essence and the identity of a woman and how God had created her as the one who would bear other humans and bring them into this world. And so a blessing goes and becomes painful. And that's the consequence in Genesis 3 to the woman. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And so very likely before the sin and before this happened, Adam and Eve had the ability to have children, and Eve was able to be pregnant and give birth without pain. Can you imagine that, ladies? Especially those of you who have had brought children into this world. And the Bible is literal. It speaks to this. This answers the question, why is there pain when women give birth today? Why is there labor? It comes right out of the reality of Genesis chapter 3. It's in God's word. It is a reminder of the penalty of sin and God's hatred of it. And God says, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. That's the first part of the consequence on the woman. The second part, he attacks, or the curse attacks her relationship. The very beginning, God created man and woman. In chapter 2, he said, he brought them together, and the two shall become one, inseparable, the most intimate and best of friends. That was God's original intent before the fall. What is the closest relationship on planet Earth today from God's point of view? On an ideal level, it is man and woman in marriage. There is no greater intimacy on planet Earth than a man and woman who love each other, especially in Christ, who are married and love one another. 
And sadly and ironically, that is what God curses or punishes on the woman because of her part in the sin. Said, so, uh, in your pain, you'll bring forth children. Then he says, your desire will be for your husband. This is not a good desire. You could use the word lust. I'm also going to bring a consequence into your marriage relationship that's supposed to be the most intimate relationship you have in hu- the human existence, and that is your relationship with your husband, where you complement one another, where you serve one another, where you love one another, where you live in harmony with one another. And that relationship is going to be attacked because of sin. Your desire shall be for your husband, or you will have a new kind of lust for your husband. You will, And what it means is the wife now will be inclined to usurp the role of the husband, to usurp the husband's authority. And it will be mutual in terms of this conflict because he says at the end of verse 16, and he, your husband, will rule over you. That is not a good thing. That is a bad thing. And so God is saying that in the marriage relationship, as a result, from now on, there's going to be conflict in the most, what he intended to be the most intimate relationship in human existence. And so really this answers the question of why is there conflict in any human relationship? This is why. This is where it entered. Because of sin and disobedience. And that is the curse on the woman. Her ability to give birth and her most intimate, cherished relationship with her husband is now under the consequence of sin. And then God turns to after the snake and after the woman, he now turns to Adam and gives him the consequence. Uh, Verse 17, and, uh, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the very earth because of you. And that includes everything, everything about earth, the the environment, the land. Cursed is the ground because of you, the entire earth uh, in toil. You eat from it all the days of your life. There was Adam had labor and work before the fall, but it was healthy. It was good. It was satisfying. It was without sin. It was out without toil. It was natural. And now God has given a consequence to how Adam would even earn his very existence. Toil has now been added. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, the earth shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You will eat bread until you return to the ground. You are going to die. You're in the process of death, beginning this day, Adam. And that's true of every human being that comes into this world. As we come into this world, sinners and fallen and cursed under the curse of God, the day that we're born is the day we begin to die in this life, literally. And we're born into a cursed earth. And every man who's been called by God to work, to make a living, there's now toil added to that and misery because of sin and hardship. Because from it, he goes on, from the earth you were taken, for you are dust, Adam, and to dust you shall return. And that is the consequence of sin. It is death. This is a gloomy picture. This is bad news. God is angry. God must punish sin. God is holy. And then God gives good news in the midst of all of this bad news. And that's what I want to look at here in verse 15, because this is the meaning of Jesus's death. This is what we remember and celebrate tonight. This is what we get to celebrate when we have communion with one another. Is this glorious promise in the midst of all this curse, consequence, death. As a matter of fact, if you you could think about everything that is bad in the world today and Write it down. You could put it under one of nine categories. And all nine evil, horrible realities are manifest in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of sin and God punishing sin. And they would include natural disasters, pain, 
strife in relationships, toil, poverty, death, spiritual separation from God, spiritual oppression from demons and Satan, and even the act of human sin. They became sinful beings at this time. Adam and Eve did, and ever since then they've passed it on to everyone born from their loins. And here's the glorious good news. Jesus Christ, God, loved his creation, and he sent his Savior into the world to overcome these nine horrible consequences. And here's the promise, verse 15. When God cursed Satan, literally, it was inside the snake. Here's what God said to Satan. I will put enmity or hatred between you, Satan, and the woman. There's going to be a conflict between you and the woman. And between your seed or your descendants, Satan, which very well could be demons or could be unbelievers of the ages. Between your seed, Satan, your descendants and her seed, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the descendants of Eve. And one of those offspring was going to be a man. From the loins of Eve would come the savior of the world. And that's who God refers to in this prophecy in the second part of verse 15. Because he's talking about the descendant, the descendants plural of Eve. And one of those descendants would be a man, the savior. And that's why God refers to him in the singular and calls him he. One of your descendants, Eve, shall be a he. As he's talking to Satan, he, this coming Messiah, will bruise you on the head. Or Satan, someone is going to come from the loins of Eve. He's going to be a human. And when he does come, he's going to crush your head. Crushing the head of a snake is destroying the very place of his power. And that is exactly what the Messiah would do. God promised from the very beginning, in the midst of sin, Darkness, gloom, and consequences, God gave the glorious hope of the gospel that would be fulfilled through Jesus, the Messiah, and it had to happen through his death. The Messiah shall bruise you on the head, Satan. He will crush you, but before you are, before he crushes you, the Messiah himself will be hurt by Satan. That's the last part of verse 15. And you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. And we know that's how snakes often strike. As people are walking by, they strike the heel. And Satan is a snake. That's how he's described. So the Messiah would come to be the savior of the world, to overcome all of these horrific consequences of sin. And in order to do it, the Messiah had to die. And that's how Satan bit him. That's how Satan struck him. And Satan thought he had a victory when he saw the Lord Jesus dying on that Good Friday, hanging on the cross for six hours at least. And little did Satan know that that was actually God's solution to all of these problems. For a death needed to happen as a result of all sin. And because Jesus was God in the flesh, infinite, almighty God, he could bear the sins of all the ages of those who would believe in him in his body as the sinless substitute. And as he hung on the cross, he bore the sins of the world. And God the Father poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ as he was the sin bearer of the ages. And God the Father was satisfied and he was pleased to crush and kill Jesus on the cross as though he was pouring his wrath against all sinners through the ages. And the Lord Jesus accepted that penalty from the Father. 
for the joy set before him. And then the Lord Jesus died. He was buried. And in fulfillment of Scripture, three days later, he rose from the dead. He rose himself from the dead. And the Father and the Spirit rose him from the dead, showing that he had power over death, power over Satan, and power over sin. And then Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, ascended on high, and reigns as King of Kings today. And that seed of that great reality of what we call the gospel and the meaning of Jesus' death began in Genesis chapter 3. And really, the rest of the Bible is a commentary and an expansion of that great news. So this evening, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, because you have recognized that He is the God-man, and you understood at some point in your life that you were a sinner, that you couldn't save yourself, you deserved the penalty of death. And you, like me, at one point in your life, the Spirit brought you to a point to confess your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness of sin and ask the Lord Jesus to come into your life. And you believed in the gospel. And in that moment, God did a supernatural work and he saved you. He justified you. He adopted you into his family. He transferred you from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son. And you've been a son or a daughter ever since you first truly believed and understood the gospel. And ever since then, you as a Christian have known the reality of true, total forgiveness of sin and the guilt that goes with it. So that now we don't have to run and hide from God anymore. Like sinners do who are unforgiving. They run and hide from the Creator. And what do we do? We run to the Creator with our sin. And we cast it upon Him and ask Him for forgiveness and thank Him for His love. And we thank Him for His blessed Savior, the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious news? That's why this Friday when Jesus died is good. It is good news. So... As we partake in communion, just a moment here after I pray. As you take the cup and the bread, hold on to it until we all have it together. And then we'll partake together and just in your own heart. And anybody who's a Christian who knows Jesus Christ personally is invited uh, to celebrate the Lord's table or communion this evening. And as you're sitting there, talk to the Lord Jesus Christ in your own heart and in your own mind. And to the Father and thanking Him for these great realities and truths. For the promise of the blessed Messiah, the Lord Jesus, who died in our behalf, who was risen from the dead, so that we might have forgiveness of sin and know God. We celebrate that great truth this evening. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we do thank you for your love for us, your creation, and your amazing love for sinners. You loved us before we loved you. Thank you in the midst of accountability and consequence, pain and death. You gave this first glorious promise, this glimpse, this seed of hope for humanity in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah would come and die for sin and be our substitute. And Father, thank you for the tangible reminder we have this evening through communion to celebrate that great reality. We commit this time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.